Matthew chapter 9, verse 1 through 8 is the message. And um, the title is Saved and Healed. Jesus demonstrated his messianic authority by teaching the Sermon on the Mount. Um, This is for all Christians. Some people say it's the kingdom age. No, it isn't. It's for here and now. And um, he is now confirming his authority as he's doing all these miraculous healings and casting out of demons. What he taught in authority, he displays through power. Jesus has healed the leopard in chapter 8, the centurion's servant, Peter's mother-in-law. He's calmed the storm in the Sea of Galilee. He's delivered the demoniac at Gadara. Ten miracles are presented in groups of threes in chapter 8 and 9. The visible evidence, the demonstration of his authority as the God-man, the Messiah, the last Adam, the one who was prophesied from Genesis 3.15 to Isaiah 7.14 to Micah 5.2, where he's going to be born, the fulfillment of everything. And so what we want to do is look here at chapter eight, verse, chapter 9, verse 1 through 8. Um, at the sixth miracle, the healing of the paralytic that is uh, characterized uh, by three things. Let me read our text for us. It says, So he um, got into a boat, crossed over and came to his own city. Then, behold, they brought to him a paralytic being on a bed. Um, And then Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, uh, some of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven, or to say, arise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, who had given such power to men. The healing of the paralytic here is characterized by the following three things. First, we have the compassion of Jesus in verse 1 and 2. Second, you have the consternation towards Jesus in verse 3 and 4. And thirdly, the confirmation of the authority of Jesus in verse 5 through 8. It begins with the compassion of Jesus. That's always great. It's always the heart of God here. The parallel passages are found in Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12, and in Luke chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, and we'll be addressing those also as we go along. Now, notice first in um, verse 1 here, the occasion took place after Jesus crossed over the Sea of Galilee back to Capernaum. Jesus has been rejected by the Gadarenes, as you know. Um, He was asked to depart. So he got into the boat, crossed over. He had experienced uh, the, the rejection by them because they had lost their pigs when he delivered the demoniac. Now, these are Jews living like Gentiles on the other side. The tribe of Gad settled over there, okay? They're in the Tiberias area. They're in the Decapolis, the ten cities. If you go to Israel, that's where we spend uh, our time in the the hotel there on that side. Um, They had no compassion for the demoniac. Jesus um, placed the value on the man, his soul, 
and they place their emphasis and value on the financial gain. That is always the case in every generation. Either you think the things of the spirit are more valuable or the things of, of material things are more valuable. Not that material things are wrong in and of themselves, but that's not the priority. Now, they were interested uh, in, in, in making money, but they were not interested in the salvation of that man's soul that was miserable all this time, no compassion at all. Uh, again, they were living as Gentiles being Jews. Big contradiction there. Now, the other two synoptic gospels help us out um, in that they present the healing of the paralytic after the cleansing of the lepers. So the, the, the scenario is a little different. You find this in Mark chapter 1, verse 40 through 45, and Luke 5, 12 through 16. And Matthew presents his gospel systematically in arrangement, not in chronological order, as we said in our introduction. And you'll see this over and over again. The first four chapters are in chronology in Matthew, 1 through 4. Then you have the Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, the kingdom life, the Christian to live out through the power of the Spirit. And then the 10 of 12 miracles uh, in Matthew are grouped here um, in chapter eight and nine in groups of threes. And this is the place where we're at right now. Now, Jesus arrived at the city of Capernaum, as it says here. He came to his own city. The name Capernaum means um, the village of Nam in Hebrew. And uh, it's one word in the Greek, whether it was really the city of the prophet Nam or not, there's discussion either way. It doesn't make any difference. Um, but here it's the village of comfort. And it was known as the city of Nahum. The headquarters of Jesus, we already saw that in chapter 4, verse 13. He grew up in Nazareth. And yet, uh, you know, as they said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Like saying, can anything good come out of Baum Park, Almani, whatever. You know what I mean? It's just, you know, and people always are going to have categories. I, I laugh at today's political correctness because cultures are so different. Uh, races are so different. And we're all funny in our own distinction. And we want to make everything bland. It's amazing to me. Stereotyping is wrong. Really? Everything is in order, and everything has differences. And some things are good, some things are bad. And when you remove objective truth and you live by subjective reasoning, the end is destruction. Keep that in mind always. The city, as you know, was located on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias or Gennesaret. And the Jordan River flowed right from there, not too far from it. Some of you have been to Israel, um, are familiar with that area. And the city was um, a major road from Damascus down to Egypt. So much commerce flowed through it. Therefore, there's a, an opportunity for taxes to be collected there. And as we'll see later on tonight, that Matthew was called there and he was a tax collector and there was great revenue. You know, they would tax you for the number of wheels you had, number of axles or what you crossed bridges. And I don't know if you received your registration for this year, but they just doubled it again for the third time. Um, remember, we live in a blue state. We lack oxygen. Okay. Um, and so, um, but let's move on. Look at verse two. Um, the situation presented the paralytic in need of a healing. Notice in verse 2. The men were focused on the critical physical condition of the man. It says, 
Then behold, they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. The sudden appearance of the man here is indicated by the word behold. It emphasizes the immediate demand to see or to observe. It is the imperative command in the error's middle voice to indicate each person to fix their eyes on that man. Any middle voice means the individual does it himself, always. It's important. Now, we, like they, look at things from the earthly perspective, so we put a greater emphasis on that which is here and now, the physical. Now, nothing wrong with the physical, but if God uh, has a choice, he puts a priority on the spiritual and says, we're the children of God, we're to do the same. You may have cancer and you may want God to heal you. And God may heal you as we pray for you, anoint you. God, we've seen many of things like that. But God's priority for you is the spiritual. It's great to live here and it's great to be a witness of God. But where will you spend eternity if you don't know Jesus Christ? Maybe you're out there on the radio somewhere in the world. You're listening to the broadcast. If you don't know Jesus Christ... You are lost, and if you die in your sin, you will perish for eternity. I don't say that with a smack of the lips. I don't say that with any joy. This is God's warning to you because he loves you to turn to him. Very important. Now, the medical melody of the man is described for us as a paralytic lying on this bed. And uh, this is a, a very simple pallet stretcher to get him there. And the paralytic refers to the relaxing of the nervous system and his, uh, his nerves and muscles to weaken his body where he can't control or move himself. And very, very painful. It's found four times in Matthew in 8, 6, 9, 2, and 6. Um, and just a malady which is just incredible. And yet God here, by his sovereign grace, is going to do a great work with him. In fact, Mark... 2, 1, and 3 says this took place after some days when Jesus returned and was in a house, it says, affirming the thematic arrangement of Matthew once again and not a chronological order. Also, that notice the four men were the ones carrying the man to Jesus there in Mark 2, 1, and 3. Now, often people will look at the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and they say, well, there's a lot of contradictions, but it isn't. It's like if you're here on Colorado and, and Sierra Madre, and, and there's four of you in the four corners, and there's a wreck that happens, and a policeman comes and takes a report from all four of you. And by the time he gets done, he says, these guys are all lying to me. Is that what he's going to say? No. He's going to thank every person because each person is going to see what happened from a different angle. And when he puts them all together, he gets a complete picture. It's simple. Okay? Now, Luke provides a commentary at this point in 517. He says, now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every." town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Notice that Mark and Luke tell us that it didn't happen right away as Matthew tells us because it's thematic, not chronological. It was after some days, okay? So again, we get the correction of the picture, not a contradiction. Now, still in verse 2, Jesus perceived the, the faith of the four men, notice, for the healing of the paralytic when Jesus saw their faith, literally, in the Greek, having seen the faith of theirs. 
The leper believed, saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can heal me. In Matthew 8, 2. I know you can, but I don't know if you want to. But his faith was there believing. The centurion believed for the healing of his servant in 8.10. The mother-in-law of Peter was healed sovereignly by God, even though they pointed out her illness. The disciples fell in their faith crossing the Sea of Galilee in the storm. In 8.26, the demoniac was delivered sovereignly by Jesus in 8.31.32. Sometimes it's your faith. Sometimes it's other people's faith. Sometimes God says, I'm going to heal you. What are you going to do about it? doesn't matter. Okay? Notice Jesus focused on the need of the spiritual condition of the paralytic to have his sins forgiven first. Listen to the words. And he said to the paralytic, Son, technion, a term of endearment, my child, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. The priority of God is not the physical, the healing, but the spiritual. He gives us provisions. He loves us. But the priority is the spiritual. And today the church is being corrupted into a cultural Christianity that's putting the emphasis on the physical, on the here and now. According to Rick Warren and many of the people, is we're here to make people comfortable and to help them get through. No, we're here to pull people out of hell. Like brands plucked out of the fire. We're here to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the priority, ladies and gentlemen. Without doubt, the four friends responded in shock. We didn't bring him to get his sins forgiven. We want him healed. Wow. There's a whole movement within the Christian church that demands God. They think God's their errand boy. Nab it and grab it. Don't say nothing negative. Wow. You ever read Genesis? The first thing God says, see that thing? Don't touch it. But the psychologist, the strengths will tell you for every negative, give two positives. I guess God doesn't know that. <laughs> wow. God is of pure eyes and to behold evil. He cannot look upon sin with condonance or approval, Habakkuk one thirteen says. And therefore, sin is always an obstacle to God. That must be taken care of first. You ever have plumbing problem at home? Something is stuck in that pipe. All right? Until that thing is removed, there's not going to be any flow. That's what sin does. Psalm 66, 18 says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, God will not hear me. He's talking to believers. Not the pagan. The believer. Wow. God's hand is not short that he cannot save. Neither is his hand heavy that he cannot hear. But your sins have separated you from God. And he turns his back on us. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2. He's talking to believers. Wow. You know that we don't turn non-believers to Satan, right? We turn believers over to Satan, right? Who refuse to repent from sin, right? Non-believers belong to Satan already. <laughs> What's the motive turning them over? That they might be saved. That they might turn from their sin. The motive is Love. Are you a parent? You have a bad child? Wayward child? Rebellious child? Do you put him out because you hate him or because you love him? He thinks you hate him, but you know you love him, right? You're the adult. He's the child, right? It's all a matter of perspective. 
Notice the tense here is the indicative present. Once again, the middle voice indicating Jesus was forgiving his sins as he stated that. And the scribes pick it up. (laughs) They knew exactly what he was saying. He was literally saying, I'm God and I can forgive sin. Whoa, Jackson. As far as east as the west, in the deepest ocean. Thank God he didn't say north and south. You'd run into your sin. And when he buries them in the deepest ocean, he puts a sign there, no fishing. Very important. Notice the phrase, good cheer. It means to be of good comfort, courage. In view of what? His past sins. The present imperative there. His sins were about to be forgiven. His sins were never to be mentioned again by God. The Jew wrongly believed that every malady or sickness was due to some sin. In fact, in John 9, 2, they said, Lord, did this man sin or his parents sin? The man that was born blind. Neither did he sin nor his parents. Now, we understand that certain sins can lead to sickness. There's sexually transmitted diseases or other things. Or you're an alcoholic and then you get strokes of the liver. But alcoholism is not a disease. Sorry, correct it. You know, I mean, how'd you get it? Did you rub up against a drunk? Did you walk by a bar and a demon go into your throat? Or what'd you do? Did you touch a dirty beer bottle and all of a sudden you got it? No, you just kept ingesting it and pretty soon you got a disease, all right? And so this whole uh, permissiveness of our society just brings destruction, which um, is really uh, wrong in itself. Um, Notice Jesus saw the faith of the paralytic here to be forgiven for his sins just as jesus perceived the faith of the four men uh, to have this man healed Uh, mark and luke also record jesus that he saw the faith of the of the men as well as him telling the man that his sins would be forgiven in mark 2 5 and luke 5 20 as you know the word forgiven uh, means to send away to to bid away to depart and the forgiveness of sin is like a cutting of a ball and chain that binds you down. When you're young, you think that you move around and it doesn't bother you. But the older you get, depending on how far you are and where you are in your road. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, you, you realize that as you get older, you're going to die. And if there is a God, I'm going to have to give an account for everything I ever did. That's an awesome thought. I don't know about you, but... The first 23 years of my life is enough to not want to give an account, all right, let alone being 60, 70, or whatever, okay? God does not save us sovereignly, but he saves us because we have faith in who he is and what he did for us, and we must call upon his name. We must believe that he's the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. So he saw the faith of the Ford for him to be healed, but he saw the faith of the man to have his sins forgiven because he's Messiah. I don't know your heart. God knows your heart. And God understands all this. Now this man had faith that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, by the way, the Savior of the world, where do you see that title in Jerusalem? No way. Samaria. 
John 4-42, by the woman of Samaria, of all places. The Jews thought that the Samaritans were just, you know, half-breeds and just kindle, to kindle the fires of hell. Wow. He is the propitiation for our sins, not ours alone, but the whole world. First John 2, 2. Thank God. Jesus is not the Savior of the chosen frozen. He died for the whole world. I presume you qualify. You remember the parable of the wicked servant in Matthew 18. He had stolen from his master. His master found him out. He couldn't repay it, millions. He had compassion upon him and he forgave him. And that same wicked servant went out and he had a fellow um, servant who owed him pennies. And he said, pay me what you owe me. And he pleaded for mercy, but he threw him in jail. Another servant onlooker went back and told the master. The evil, wicked was, uh, servant was recalled. And he says, did I forgive you everything? And he cast him in jail. Here's the punchline. The application. Verse 35. So my heavenly father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. That's the Christians. Not the non-believers. Keep that in mind. Wow. There is no person that God cannot save except the one who refuses to be saved. As powerful as God is, he asks for your permission. Is that crazy? (laughs) There will be no one in heaven saying, doggone it, I wanted to go to hell. God forced me to be here. And there will be no one in hell saying, God sent me here. Each of them will say, I sent myself. Ooh. Oh, what would people in hell this minute would do to hear the gospel one more time? Just one more time. Some people reject Jesus to be saved because they believe in the goodness of man. As I've told you often, finish the sentence, good for nothing. Man is not good. He's good for nothing. It's been 44 years since I've been saved. You want to go sin? I'm ready. I am a great sinner. I can turn it on immediately. It's a choice. Others reject Jesus for riches, fame, pleasure. And you can keep adding to the list. Few will humble themselves and agree that they are bankrupt as sinners in need of salvation depending on the atoning work of Jesus Christ to be justified before God. Eight got in the boat. The rest of the world perished. Two entered the promised land out of two to three million over the age of 20. The disciples asked Jesus, are there many to be saved? Few. Wow. Agonize. The word agon. Athletic term. If you're an athlete, you know what it's talking about. You strive. You deny yourself. There's suffering. There's pain. Agonized to enter in. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1. What a glorious verse. If you stand on anything but Jesus, you're standing on shallow and thin ground. (laughs) 
It must be Christ. The greatest need of man is to be forgiven for his sins, and the greatest miracle God ever performs is to save a person. We've seen people get healed from different things, but you know what the greatest miracle is? That you're born again. You will never experience or see a greater miracle than your salvation. You were there. You cannot escape it. He messed your life up for good. Changed. To die in our sins unsaved is to be separated from God for all eternity. The minute we give our last breath. To die in our sins means we will have to give an account to God for every sin, every word, every thought that we've ever had. That is scary. To die in our sins means eternal punishment. And God takes no joy in it. Listen to Ezekiel 18.32. For I have no pleasure in the death of one who dies, says the Lord Yahweh. Therefore, turn and live. God pleads with you. Even as Jesus pled over Jerusalem and he cried. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills the prophets and stones them. How many times I wanted to gather you as a hand gathers your chains, but you would not. If you would have known this thy day, the things that were prepared for you, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Ooh, he wept. He wept. Because they should have known that day prophesied in the 70 weeks of Daniel. Wow. The compassion of Jesus is immeasurable. Immeasurable. Notice, secondly, you have the consternation towards Jesus, verse 3 through 4. In verse 3, the response of the religious men present regarded the words of Jesus in secret. Mark that well. The response was as soon as they heard the words of Jesus, your sins are forgiven you. Almost as when you hear something from somebody and you just, no, what are you talking about? I mean, instantly. It just hit their, their nerve. The ones that are identified as scribes, grammaritos, from, you get grammar from it and words like that. They were the lords, the interpreters, the teachers of the Mosaic law, the scriptures. They were the scholars. Now, I'm not against education. Get all that you can. Once you get it, get over it. Um, use it. Don't wear it. God will take care of it. Uh, you know how you know a scholar, right? They write in such a way that you don't know what they're talking about. But a person who is educated and understands it puts things real simple. Very important. Okay? Now, these scribes prided themselves in this knowledge. And that's always there for any one of us. We can pride ourselves over the dumbest things that's ever present. None of us are excluded. These scribes, without any hesitation, reacted to the words of Jesus. Notice it says, at once some of the scribes they were not there in faith as Jesus was teaching, but doubting and there to criticize. This is the first opposition in Matthew. It's going to continue to increase. They were not present believing Jesus was the promised Messiah. They were there believing and knowing in their hearts that he was the false Messiah. The response of these scribes, notice, was within themselves. This man blasphemes. They didn't say anything aloud but rather within themselves. Mark puts it this way. Mark 2.6. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, 
Luke says much the same thing. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, Luke 5.21. Now, Pharisees are mentioned by Luke. Matthew doesn't. He focuses on the scribes. Not a contradiction. Supplement. Notice they accuse Jesus of the worst crime. This man blasphemes. The word for blasphemy speaks, it means to speak reproachfully against God or the things of God. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God. The phrase, this man, is a derogatory term. How they see Jesus, this man. Somebody tells you, that woman. You don't call her by her name, right? It's derogatory. Jesus has just declared himself to be God. Very clearly by telling the paralytic that his sins are forgiven. They understood this clearly, the middle voice, as he was saying that they were forgiven. Blasphemous. Wow. Mark records their thoughts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Mark 2, 7. Mark confirms this, or Luke confirms this. Who is this who speaks blasphemy? Who, who can forgive sins but God alone? In Luke 5.21, they presented the correct answer to themselves, but they weren't able to accept it. That's exactly who he was. He was God, but it, they, they couldn't tolerate that. There was no place for that, even as today. Evolution is the religion of our nation and the world. God is not an option. In spite of the evidence, you twist the evidence so you can continue to believe your deception. There isn't enough chance factor or time alone for the first simple cell to evolve. Because it's not that simple. Would you believe this? Watch, I was driving down the 210 this morning and I was a big explosion. This thing landed on my wrist. Wow. I can't wait till I drive back home. <laughs> Amazing to me. Luke and Mark agree with Matthew and supplement us in many ways. Look at verse 4. The response of Jesus to the scribes regarding their words was openly. There's what's secret? He's openly. Notice Jesus knew everything, but Jesus knowing their thoughts, the word but is not a contrast here, but rather a cumulative force. Um, though the scribes were speaking to themselves in their hearts and thoughts, Jesus heard them. Okay? It's expounding it. Though the scribes were thinking they were creep, uh, escaping uh, the fact to be detected, Jesus was about to expose them. Knowing means intuitively. Jesus literally, it says, having perceived, the part is simple here, eras active. Jesus being God knows all things. He had no need for anybody to tell him anything, John 2.25 says. He sees all things. He knows all things. He even knows the motive of the heart and the, int the intent of the heart. All we can do is judge the actions. And even in judging the actions, sometimes we judge it wrong because we don't know the heart. 
The thoughts describe the process of the mind. There's in particular the receiving of information, the assimilating of information, the accommodating of information, the evaluating of information. But if you're missing one factor, your conclusion is going to be wrong. The factor that we're missing is he was God. You ever try to balance your checkbook, one check missing? You can guess at it. You might get close, but I doubt you're going to hit it on the head. It's just not going to work. The scriptures tell me in one... Psalm 139, 2, that God knows my thoughts from afar off from their origin. I don't even know them till they get there. That is scary. Look at 4 still. Jesus accused the scribes of their sin openly, aloud. Why do you think evil in your heads? No, in your hearts. The accusation regards their thinking that is going on at the very time Jesus is accusing them and previous to that. The word think means to revolve the mind, to ponder. As all this is going on in their mind, their heart, all these things are going on. I can't believe this guy, this and that. And sometimes people are like that. I know they hear me. They say, I can't believe what he just said. Well, listen to me again. I'm going to say it again. Uh, Because it's God's word. We don't have to apologize for God's word. It's very important. Again, the indicative present middle voice here, each of them was doing it. The middle voice is the individual. The character of their thinking is identical to the word evil here. There is one. He identifies it. Poneros, it refers to the wicked condition, the vileness of it. In fact, it's used as a title for Satan in 1 John 5, 18 and 19. He is the Poneros. He's not only evil and wicked, but he loves making people evil and wicked. Wow. These are the religious guys? These are the teachers? We still have some of their descendants today over pulpits. You have Fuller Cemetery over here. PhDs. But they've given up the inspiration of Scripture long ago. They gave this platform over to the German invaders of the new thought. They run after the latest craze. Now it's emerging. Amazing to me. Notice the origin of this evil is the heart, cardia. Literally, your heart that pumps blood through your body keeps you alive, but here it's in the spiritual sense, the center and the seat of our intellect, emotion, and will as a sinner. Mark says, but immediately, when Jesus perceived in the spirit that they reasoned thus within himself, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Mark 2, 8. Luke confirms this, but when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Luke 5.22. The heart is a very important place. The heart is deceitful, desperately wicked above all things. Who can know it? Jeremiah 79 says, only God. People always say, well, he's got a good heart. No, he doesn't. Oh, but he's good. He's good for nothing. Finish the sentence. We are not that. Now, we have, a, we have a potential for good because we're creating the image and likeness of God. But our bent is towards evil. 
Mom gives the older brother a piece of candy. He says, give your brother half of that candy bar. He gets it, breaks it in half, puts it up against it, evens it out, and gives it to his brother. Is he good? Of course not. What's his problem? You're his parent. You're not good either. Wow. Listen to me carefully. No one will ever sin against you as much as you have sinned and do sin against God, and yet he forgives you every time. Whoa, Jackson. You see, we get so offended when we're a sinner. How could dare he say that to me? And how could he do that to me and this and that? Well, you're a rotten sinner like him. See, the problem is my sin on you looks much worse than on me. I can understand why God forgive me. You, I'm not sure. Welcome to the club. Now, do you think we deserve to be saved? It's all mercy and grace, ladies and gentlemen. We don't even have any idea how much mercy and grace until we get there. That's why you're on your face in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation. And the crowns are at his feet. Then we're going to know really what salvation was all about. Wow. The person who opposes Jesus Christ and becomes actively hostile to him in his church is actively storing up wrath against himself, the wrath of God. People are tolerant to idolatry and morality. Today we live in a very subjective world. All the blacks and whites have been made gray. Uh, you can't make judgments, nothing like that. People are tolerant to all religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, New Age, realization, seeking of guys, spirit guys, whatever it is. You know, we're all inclusive. We can learn everything and something from anything. No, we can't. In a subjective manner, you can, but not in an objective world. See, right's always right when you're turning, and left's always left. All right? Right, right has never turned left, and left has never turned right. Up is up, always. Down is down, always. But yet we twist the morality and the ethics of the world and think we can play games with it. When you balance your checkbook, I've told you often, a one's always a one. A one is not a one for the bank today, but that one is a ten for you. That's subjective. A bank would never survive like that. And they wouldn't let you do it, right? But we do it with ethics. We do it with morality. Why? Because we're evil. Not because we're good. People are intolerant to God, declaring that Jesus is the only way to heaven and the way to be saved. And when they do that, they are adding God's wrath to them. Now, when you have a dam, a dam is controlled by the pressure that's going on. They open gates and let water out. But in the same way, a person who rejects and is hostile towards God, they keep adding wrath of God to themselves because of what they do and what they say and what they think against God. And finally... When a person dies, then all of that is put before them as accountable. Full pressure. Full account. No release. God wants to keep you from that. He wants to keep me from that. He wants to pour his grace upon me. He wants to forgive me. He wants to cleanse me. He wants to make me more like him, less like me. All the time. Listen to Romans 2, 4 through 5. Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, long-suffering, not knowing the goodness of God leads you to repentance, but in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasure enough for yourselves, wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. 
sinning against conscience, creation, and history, and special revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ. General and special. Wow. Every day of your life and you die without Christ. God help us. There will be people that will be very angry and bitter against Jesus and yourself because you will dare to tell them that everything you did has been forgiven and that you'll never have to give an account for it. They will go postal. You know why? Because they know many of your sins. (laughs) And they will think that it's not fair that you think you've gotten away with all this. It's not just. They will call you deceived, a hypocrite, dishonest, Did you even have the nerve to even say such a thing? In fact, even if your life is transformed, as they look at your life, they will refuse it because they have no room for God. That's not not even possible for them, and therefore, they're angry. Both at God and at you. In John 8, 48, listen carefully. Then the Jews answered and said to him, Jesus, Do we not know rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Whoa. All he was trying to do was save people. They don't like that. You used to think the same way. (laughs) And so did I. Maybe not as hot or whatever it is, but but we were on that side. Blind, dead, and trespasses and sins. Right? Hmm. Hmm. The consternation towards Jesus was detestable. Notice thirdly comes the confirmation of the authority of Jesus in 5 through 8. In 5 and 6, Jesus presented a very simple question to demonstrate he was God. He asked, for which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise and walk? The easiest would be to say your sins are forgiven because you don't have to show any visible evidence to demonstrate that. You just say it. That's it. From the human perspective. The more difficult would be to say arise and walk because you would have to show some tangible evidence for the guy to get up and to walk. Jesus proceeded now, notice, to demonstrate his divine authority to forgive sins by giving the evidence of the more difficult from the human perspective to heal the man. But that you may know that the Son of Man, or God uh, incarnate here, the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the a paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. The title, Son of Man, identifies Jesus as God incarnate here. He is the one that Daniel prophesied in Daniel 7, the Messiah to come. Two imperative commands here. Take up an imperative heiress, a momentary act, one time, get up, and then go as a present imperative, a continual act of walking away. Boom, and he kept on walking. There's the evidence. The lesser to the greater. Jesus demonstrated his authority over the unseen, demonstrating his authority over that which can be seen. His authority over what is not seen by what is seen. Wow. But you know what? There might have been one or two of the scribes that said, wow, he is God. But the majority, because they're already set 
in their mind and heart that he's not God became more enraged. I guarantee you. Mark and Luke record the identical words. Look at 7 and 8. Jesus healed the paralytic man completely. In verse 7, the paralytic responded in faith to the words of Jesus. The paralytic stood on his feet and he arose. He was no longer laying on his bed. He was no longer able to not control his body. He was no longer in pain. He was made whole. One can only imagine the elation of this man. You remember the man that they called beautiful when Peter and John came by and they, he thought they were going to give him some coin. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ. Rise up and walk. And he jumped and leaped and praised God and started giving credit to them. And they, hey, what are you guys looking at us? We did this. You know, this man stands whole by the faith in Jesus Christ, so on and so forth. Always giving the glory to God as we're going to see. Always. When a work of God is being done, we do not follow a pastor. We do not follow a movement. We do not follow a denomination. We follow Jesus Christ. Very, very important. Okay? Cults are all over today. All right? And God will bring them down. Guaranteed. Mark says, immediately he arose and took up his bed in Mark 2.12. Luke says, immediately he rose up before them, took up what he had been laying on. Luke 5, 24, the paralytic notice just went home. He departed to his house. The miracle was witnessed by all. In fact, Mark says, and he went out in the presence of them all, Mark 2, 12. Everybody present in the house. They were being taught. Disruption comes up. They're up in the house. They tear the roof apart. They lower them down. What's going on? The focus is on the man. The focus is on Jesus. The interaction is going on. This man gets up. Says, see you guys later. Wow. Luke affirms this. He departed to his own house glorifying God. The man glorifying God. Luke 5.25. The response of the people was to be in awe of God. This is always the net result if God is in the work. Look at verse 8. The miracle was witnessed by all who were present. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God. Marvel means to be amazed and wonderment. Because something happened here that defies the laws, of the natural laws of science and, and of this world. God intervened. We've seen people get healed of cancer. Uh, Peter had a grass wife, Wendy, uh, uh, stage five, and she's... Totally restored. We, uh, Amy Ken's, you know, a tumor from her neck down to her abdomen, completely healed. Then we've seen others that God takes home. He's sovereign, right? Notice the reason was, who had given such power to men? Power exusia means the authority to do the miracle of healing this paralytic man. The authority is the means by which you're allowed to do it, the power is the ability to do it. Remember, they asked Jesus, by what authority do you do this? In other words, but who gave you the, the right? Who gave you the permission? And then the power is the manifestation of having that authority. Mark says, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this, Mark 2.12. Luke says, and they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear 
saying, we have seen strange things today, Luke 2, 5, 26. Now, people say there's a contradiction. Fear, how can that be? Simple, because there's non-believers there. And when you see something like that, you freak out when you're a non-believer. Or you repent. There's a mixed multitude. There's different people. Okay? No unsaved person blurts out when they are nailing a nail into the wall with a hammer and miss it and hit their thumb. Oh, Buddha. Oh, Allah. Oh, Krishna. Oh, Daffy Duck. No. They say, oh, Jesus Christ. What is it about that name that even non-believers say it? Now, they don't do it in honor. We have never did it in honor. We hit ourselves on the thumb with a hammer. We call out to Jesus. Oh, Lord, help me. I don't curse them. The response is different because the heart has changed, right? We're under new construction. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord on earth and in heaven. Every tongue shall do this. Right now, it's by choice. Once a person dies or the Lord returns, it's by force. No choice any longer. It's a window time, ladies and gentlemen. The age of grace is a window time. That window time is closing. Every day it gets closer, smaller. Faith is always related to the revelation of God's word. People always say, I have faith. Faith in what? If what you believe doesn't come out of the word of God in context, your faith is not faith, it's foolishness. If God would have said, listen, if you just jump up ten times, clap your hands, and spit, and that's how you get saved, that would be faith. I would be acting according to God's revelation. It must relate me back to the word of God if it's going to be biblical faith. Very important. Faith is belief and trust in the word and the promises of God. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Romans ten seventeen. Faith has nothing to do with our feelings, our emotions, our reason, our logic. Yet our faith is reasonable. It's not based on reason alone, but it's reasonable. We walk by faith, not by sight. Second Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that. You've read the book of Hebrews. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Hebrews 11, 1. And those that come to God must believe that he is and that he is the reward of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews eleven six. Faith, the word of God. That's why it's imperative and constant in the word that we are to study, we are to meditate, we are to grow, we are to develop, we are to mature, pressing towards the goal, the upward call of God. People will be looking to our lives, yours and mine as Christians, to see if the authority of God is over our lives. If we're living according to God's word, if we are being transformed from day to day, to be the church, not go to church. You must be the church. Don't go to church. To be consistent. To be committed. You know why? Listen to me carefully. Your children are looking at you. They're listening to you. And they think you're spiritual. Don't disappoint them. Gentlemen, you're the high priest. It's on your shoulders. I didn't make the rules. Then they'll see you 
lead your family in the things of God. To pray for those who are lost. Reach out to the lost. To be light and salt to this dark world. Jesus put it this way in Matthew 5.16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and clap for you. No. Glorify your Father which is in heaven. Matthew 5.16. Everything that comes from your life, people should thank God. Especially the Christian community. If people start looking to you, you're an idol. You're a stumbling block. They should always look to Jesus. And so the confirmation of the authority of Jesus is undeniable. Wow, what a passage. The healing of the paralytic, characterized by these three things, the compassion of Jesus, immeasurable. The consternation towards Jesus, detestable. The confirmation of the authority of Jesus, undeniable. Man, what will we do without God's word? We would destroy ourselves. Lord, we worship you. We thank you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for your love towards us, your grace. We thank you for just bringing us together to read and to study. And we thank you for using us. Lord, we pray right now for those that are listening here and over the world in the radio station, over the internet, that, Lord, you would just uh, deal with their hearts if they don't know you. As a father... Come to understand your love for them and how you died for them and rose from the dead. And if you're out there, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, God has brought you to be saved. You're out there in the world somewhere. Jesus loves you. Now you have to make a choice whether you believe that you're a sinner in need of salvation, that you are an enemy of God in need of peace being brought between you and God by God himself. If that is your agreement, then that's the grace of God by the Spirit of God. A simple prayer of repentance is what God requires right where you sit, right where you're at. And he will save you right now and forgive you of all your sins. His words, not mine. This is your prayer to him. Father, I come to you in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me, Lord, for all my sins. Give me a brand new heart. Baptize me with your Holy Spirit. I accept you as my Savior and Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.